All topics covered here are for conversational purposes only and do not constitute financial advice. Please contact Mulcahy Co. to receive advice on all matters from one of our professionals. Welcome listeners to the Financial Security 360 podcast, um, our second episode for 2023, episode 53. You're welcomed here today by host Gavin Nash, that's me, and I'm uh, joined by Geelong financial planner Danny Archer. G'day Danny. G'day Gavin, Happy New Year. Happy New Year mate, we can still say Happy New Year officially until the end of January. That's the rule, someone the told unwritten me that, rule. Someone told me the other day. Because I've sort of, it's hard isn't it, because you kind of get back to work and then some people are emailing you saying Happy New Year and you're like... Yeah, man, it's like the 24th of January. What's going on? <laughs> I've been at work for two and a half weeks, but um, some people haven't. They're just no, coming a, back now. Definitely a January thing. Once February rolls around, I don't think it's a worthwhile Every, intro into an email. Everyone's looking forward to the next um, public holiday by then, mate. So, now, well, thanks for joining me, Danny, today. You've got a really interesting topic today to talk about. It's called the value of financial advice. And we have touched on this topic, haven't we, Danny, in previous mm. podcasts, but we thought we'd actually take a bit of a deep dive into it. So... In general, we're talking about uh, the idea of using a financial advisor, someone professional in the area that is an expert, um, to assist you with your financial decisions rather than having to crack yourself or, or making those decisions without the professional advice. So, yeah, it's a bit of a deep dive today, Danny, but uh, you're very well organised as normal with your uh, with your notes. So um, we're actually going to cover five topics today and I'll, I'll hand it over to you to sort of start on the whole thing and where the five topics have come from um but yeah really interesting um episode today guys so enjoy over to you danny thanks gab so yeah russell investments published a report in 2022 was as gab said called the value of an advisor report and and a key purpose of it was there's a a, a, a long-standing question you know in in our industry which is how can financial advisors amplify or, or quantify their value? Because a lot of the time, depending on the client circumstance, it can actually be quite difficult for a financial advisor to actually explain what's going on behind the scenes in order to prepare, deliver, and also implement advice. So a key thing that we always like to say to our clients is a good financial advisor isn't a, just a stock picker or just a fund manager. Our, our main role isn't to get you a better return on your super portfolio or your investment portfolio than you're already currently getting. Yes, it's an aspect of what we do, absolutely, but it's not the key aspect and it's not not the main aspect as well. So the report by Russell Investments was, was really, really good. I first saw it um, on the Today Show not long after COVID it came out, so it was quite timely. Um, they actually were talking about it and I saw the little number there down the bottom. And the report actually... Um, with uh, the five different subheadings that Gavin spoke about, it actually quantifies the percentage value add of a financial advisor um, for a year, not including any investment returns that we might get you above and beyond what you would have had when you walked through the door. So the that's five... A, that's a good one because you really they've been able to boil it down to mm. an actual percentage that you will get you know, maybe better... Um, by having the financial advice on your investments. Correct. So you can see why Amazing. for financial advisors around the country was a you know, watershed moment for us because, yeah. again, it's based on some assumptions and it's, it's an average and all of, all of those kind of things. But the theory is actually, um, you know, it, it's quite concise. There's a lot right. of science behind it too, which, which is quite good. You know, always check your references. So the five in a high-level view are, A, stands for appropriate asset allocation. So where are we putting your money and why? B stands for behavioural mistakes or behavioural finance, which, Gav, this is what you and I have discussed. We have This has been a topic in the past for us, hasn't it? A lot, yeah. yeah. And we, you could potentially argue that this is the main value that an advisor can provide. So we'll get into that one as well. C stands for the cost of cash, which is a pretty simple one, but also um, very, very important. The E stands for expertise. So the advisor's knowledge, the advisor's experience, their skill set. Why they're telling you what they're telling you is the key. So you should always be able to ask your advisor why. If they can't answer that question, bit of a red flag as well. Yep, sure. And the last one is T, and that one stands for tax-effective investing. As we all know, no good having a heap of money in the bank if you're just going to give half of it away to tax. Absolutely. So. There's an argument that you know they're not <laughs> spending it very well. So if you can, try and um, reduce it where possible. So the whole point of this was to aggregate the, the total value out of those five different um, service offerings from a financial advisor and then that percentage per year, which actually equates to a bit over 5%. In total. So it's pretty so, big. So once all these uh, things are taken into account, 
really on an average, national average kind of point of view, as you said earlier, Russell Investments have said, really, that's sort of worth a bit over 5% per year extra on top of your current investments or, you know, without that financial advice. Spot on. And then the the, the report basically summarised and said that, well, that 5.2% in most situations is actually greater than the upfront and the ongoing fees of engaging a financial planner. So if your financial planner charge, charges you a flat dollar fee or a percentage-based fee, as long as that's less than 5.2%, which I hope it is, um, of what they're looking after for you, then you're ahead by engaging, by engaging the planner. And also the other thing is, we'll touch on it as we sum up at the end too, Danny, but it does, does come down to the idea that there are some experts in every area of life, aren't there? You know, like you, you hire a builder to build your house, you, you know, yep. get a hairdresser to cut your hair. Um, so financial planning and your financial um, you know, health is no different. You know, we're, we're sort of talking about getting an expert on board so that you can understand exactly and get the best results for yourself. Correct, spot on. I'll let you get stuck into the first step, Danny. So the first one is asset allocation, which they're all important. Um, this one talks about which sectors or industries or countries in the world are you placing your, your money in. So, you know, we found that actually 65% of people in the research that Russell Investments did actually don't know where their funds are invested um, by way of country, industry and sector. So what I mean by that is, are you in the, the mining sector or which industry are you in or the country is, is an obvious one. And then the role of the advisor in this case is to help our clients actually articulate what their goals are, translate this into um, an investment objective and then design the best possible strategy and also portfolio recommendations that do come with a level of risk that's appropriate for the client. So we also help the client understand the level of risk that's required um, and the implications of the risk is actually a pretty critical ingredient in an advice conversation. So we don't want to, you know, not taking on sufficient risk can impact whether a client's goal is potentially achievable or not. So that also ties a little bit into the, the cost of the advice. But the reason why asset allocation is so important is that an example I always use is the Australian market's fantastic. We do have some great companies in our market. We do um, the, the Australian share market also and the tax system comes with franking credits, which are fantastic. And a lot of the other um, countries around the world don't come with those. But the reality is the Australian market only represents 2 or 3% of the world's market. Mm-hmm. So if you had all of your money just in Australian equities or Australian property, there are some pros to that. But you're also foregoing diversification to 98% of the world. Right. as well so yep. there are other you know companies in the world that are just as um just as appealing or um just as lucrative to put your money in as well but you, you, people might see on their superannuation statements there's a little pie chart which has different colors on it and they represent either different countries or the different sectors where um, people have their money invested in invested and it probably comes back to jonathan uh etc and the guys up in invest sense in sydney your research team danny where you know, Jonathan often talks, he talked at our Geelong uh, event last year that we had back in May last year, 2022, about, um, yeah, you can sort of, if, if you love property, you can still invest in shares, but you invest in commercial property shares, you know. So there's different ways to go about, uh, you know, and research teams like InvestSense, their job is to see what's going about to go well or what, what's about to come back so that they can sort of best position your money as well. So Correct. Unless you're across, as a single individual person, unless you're across the whole share market worldwide, as you just said, uh, there's no way you're going to get that sort of uh, level of knowledge of the than someone like InvestSense have, which is, yeah, your research team. And that's their job. And a, a key part of asset allocation too is, Um, Big fund managers like to have a certain percentage allocation to certain countries, Um, but then they don't also, it's not not stock picking in its own right as well. So that's actually less relevant as in, do I have picking a name, the Commonwealth Bank or the NAB or ANZ? That's less relevant than, okay, we need X amount of percentage allocated to Australian financial stocks because of the reasons that they because of the reasons that we want which are mainly for dividend investing and those kind of things so it's we must be careful out there that asset allocation isn't quite as in detailed as picking stocks it's just what overall sector that's important and the 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 stock selection or the etf selection or the managed fund selection will effectively look after itself 
in the longer run. And one little thing I made a note about as you were talking there, Danny, was you mentioned about, you know, the the risk level, which which everybody knows if you go with high-risk share portfolio, you know, there's potential for high gains, but there's also potential for pretty sharp losses. Uh, You know, everyone's heard about the blue chip shares Mm -hmm. and all those larger companies. So, you know, safer shares maybe don't grow as quickly, but, you know, you're probably not going to get burnt on the other end either when they go down uh, sharply or they won't go down sharply. So it happened in the past. So, yeah, it's interesting that you talked about the kind of level of risk that you're comfortable with. And I suppose that's the conversation you would have with your clients too about, you know, how comfortable are they? What stage of life are they at? Should they be taking some risks here? Should they up their risk a bit or or lower it because they're getting closer to retirement, whatever? Risk is important. So there's a, an example in the Russell Investments report here that shows the difference between returns with a, a portfolio that has 30% of the assets invested in gross stocks and 70% in defensive stocks. And then another one is, okay, what if 70% of the portfolio was in gross stocks and 30 was in defensive? So a gross stock is a share and a defensive stock or a defensive asset is a turn deposit or something like that. So... A split which is pretty decent, so it's a 40% swing, but the long-term return of the more defensive portfolio is actually 8%, and the long-term return of the more aggressive portfolio is 9%. So as long as you can stomach and sleep well at night knowing that you do have more of your capital allocated to growth stocks, which as you said, Gavin, can go up and down, but they do also provide the the potential for greater returns over the long-term as well, which is a good segue into, into B, which is you know, the behavioural mistakes or behaviour finance. So, And this for all of our avid podcast listeners, this is definitely a, a topic we have touched on in the past, Danny. Uh, and I know it's a favourite of yours, so I'll let you get stuck into it. Yeah, it's one of the most vital services an advisor can provide. So the study of investor behaviour actually shows that many investors do things like they make the wrong decision at the wrong time, which is an easy way to explain what behaviour finance is. And a common example of that is things like buying high and selling low. So um, if the share market has gone gangbusters for six months' time, some people do get a bit a bit greedy or that, that, that FOMO, fear of missing out, and they start to buy then. Where, and then when it's tanked because the share market goes up and down, up and down, up and Constantly. down. But yeah. the, the trend line is up. And then when the market tanks, they go, oh, I shouldn't have done this. I've made the wrong decision. I was overconfident, all those kind of things. And they Went sell. so well for me for six months. <laughs> and COVID's a great example of that, which we'll talk about in a moment. So the report actually specifies that through COVID, financial markets have reacted very swiftly and significantly. So you might remember that the market tanked very quickly. It dropped, you know, 30 35% in a couple of months. Um which was basically in response to a whole raft of health and economic policy measures and data. So things like early access to super or you were told to not leave it, not, not leave your home, everything was locked down. So people were thinking, how are businesses going to make money? We're turning into World War Three from a, an economic and a health point of view. And, it's, you know, the long and short of it is the general public really, really freaked out and, and reacted in a very negative way. So during this period, there were two observations of, of behaviour. Of behavior. So one of them was the loss-averse investor. And what that means is investors are actually more fearful of potentially losing money and they focus on trying to avoid loss than they do making a gain. So if you had $100,000, the loss-averse investor is more concerned about losing 10 grand than making 10 grand. Okay. So that goes into that risk. So that kind of person going back to the asset allocation it might not be prudent for them to have a very high growth portfolio because it just isn't appropriate for their particular circumstance or what we call their risk profile, which yep. is completely fine. Yep. It's how and it is. And you work with people all the time. Based on that, so those, that set of beliefs and what they're into yep. and what they can sleep at night with and what they can't. We help educate because there are pros and cons either way. But at the end of the day, if the client isn't sleeping at night because of how we've, had, we've got them invested, then we haven't done our job yep, exactly. at all. Yep. And the other one is the overconfident investor. So this is the one that, you know, they've got high conviction in their decisions because they've made a, a few bets and had a few wins because through COVID, the, a, lot of the, um, a lot of the returns after COVID were actually really, really strong. It was deemed easy to make a dollar in the share market or even in the property market. So because of the, the high confidence they have in their decisions, um, they don't actually take into account the actual risk, return or long-term impact of a short-term decision um, that can have on their, on their long-term future. So both of these investor types largely represent individuals with no real advisor relationship. So most advisors would educate against being you know, a loss-averse investor and they would educate against 
being what we call a speculative investor, which is where you go up, down and sideways a lot. So there's an example here of basically a comparison of the two. So let's say member A, who's a loss averse investor, they actually sold their super portfolio down to cash on the 16th of March in 2022. So basically about a week before the bottom of the market. This is when COVID, the COVID sell-off had almost peaked. So they, let's say they were in a high growth portfolio where they had most of their money in shares and property. And then they were so worried about the fact that their portfolio had dropped so much in such a short amount of time, they couldn't handle it anymore and they converted to cash, which a lot of people did. Member B actually stayed invested throughout the period. So they probably weren't happy to see their portfolio drop, but because they were educated and they know what the markets do over the long term, they decided to, to stick fat. Member A would have actually locked in losses of over 50 grand compared to member B, who actually benefited from the early market rebounds and they, their portfolio recovered $20,000 by the end of May. So we're talking March, April, May. In three months, member A's lost 50000 member B's gained twenty, So that's a swing of $70,000. Wow. And that just does illustrate that, you know, that art of investing we've spoken about a lot in the past about buying low and selling high and understanding the market and understanding that, yes, if there's a dip, you know, there's also going to be a recovery at some stage. So as you say, you know, sticking fat is, is, is sometimes a good thing to do. Yeah. Correct. And like I said, a lot of retail investors, which the easy um, definition of a retail investor is basically anyone who buys and sells shares or, or or trades for their own portfolio in their own time. So they're not, not a professional and they're not under advice. So um, a lot of a lot of those guys, um, basically, they underperformed what the, the Russell Investment call their 3,000 index, which is basically the top 3,000 companies over um, around the world. So over about a 26-year period, someone who bought and sold very quickly because they reacted to market news, market commentary, actually underperformed a portfolio that they wouldn't have had to have touched. And talking about the, the, the buy, sell, buy high, sorry, and sell low mentality, the report has a graph that through three really distinct um, share market downturns in the last little while, one of them being the tech bubble in sort of 2000, 2001, then there was a GFC, then there was COVID. There's a clear correlation between there being a lot of what they call outflows from the market during downturns. What that means is people selling, either selling or converting their super investments to cash, which is arguably the worst thing to do. There's a Warren, uh, a Warren Buffett um, quote that I really like, which is, I like a lot of his quotes, but this one's quite good. It's be fearful when others are greedy and then be greedy when others are fearful. So when people are greedy, which is when the markets are going gangbusters, be a bit fearful because a lot of the time the actual purpose or the reason for that could be um, not, not fake, but it, couldn't, it, it might not be exactly fundamentally um, sound. And it might, it might not be sustainable correct. over time. It could be a bubble, could be a debt fuel bubble, could be any of those things. Whereas when greedy, what he means by being greedy when others are fearful is when markets are, are tanking and being sold off, like through COVID, um, the smart person actually was, was buying shares, like member B, who just held their course. If they were still employed, their super contributions were continuing to buy shares or units in their, in their portfolio, yep. and then the benefits, the benefits are there. That also continues on, so... The report also goes into a bit more detail. From 1984 to 2020, it's compared what a retail investor, so someone who was really reactive to market news and all of those kind of things, trying to trade in their own right with their own skill set, they might have returned over a 36-year period about 87 8.75%, which is pretty good. Pretty good, yeah. If, if most people, if you said to most people 8% you know, pretty standard, they'd be pretty happy. Yeah. We always say in our business, though, good compared to what? Yes, exactly. So what's the benchmark? What are we comparing that to? If you're comparing that to 2%, then of course it's really good. Awesome. But again, the Russell 3000 index, which is just an index of the top 3000 companies in the world, it actually returned closer to 11% in that time. So that same 36-year period from 85 onwards, and it was an extra 2%. Correct, 2.2% yeah. for not doing a thing. No, not, just Not enacting it. one trade yep. or buy or sell or yep. reading any reports, doing whatever you would have liked to have done you've made yourself a bit more money and all the time that you've got back in your pocket, yep. it's a big one. 
So well, that, and as you say, time and it's also headspace. You know, that, correct. That person buying and selling and listening to the news and listening to the politician and the economist talking about this and talking about that. And oh, I better buy this. And tech's going to be big. And now tech's not so big. And so all those things. And as you say, the art of doing nothing is that you know sometimes it's the best thing to yeah. do. So there are some added risks to behaviour finance um, that we're pretty keen on here. So we'll talk about a couple. There's four here that I want to touch on. Two we've already mentioned. So. The loss-averse investor, as we've said, this is a person that tends to prefer avoiding losses than acquiring gains. Now, what they'll do is they'll sell winners too early and they might even hold losers too long. And how an advisor can manage that is we can actually illustrate the connection between the reason why they're invested and their long-term goals. So we might say, Gavin, you're planning on retiring in 25 years. I know one of your stocks or something else has performed really badly. But the reason for that is it might be cyclical, it might be a commodity, and then for whatever reason, the price of a certain iron ore or metal might be down at this point in time. You're a 20 to 25-year investor. Just hold it because we think that in the future, for X, Y, Z reason, there's actually um, there's actually purpose to hold this. Yep. So they do versus selling it, locking in the loss, and then for whatever reason, that company starts to go really well and they don't get exposure to that. Yeah, so that's something to be mindful. And that of. might be different if someone's three years from retirement rather than twenty-five years. You know, so all those things can change. And that's when asset allocation is important, where we might change what percentage of your portfolio is in growth assets versus defensive assets. So there's a bit more capital preservation on the table. Makes sense. The other one's overconfidence, which again was really, really popular or really, really profound through COVID, um, mainly on the share market rebound when anyone seen, everyone you spoke to was making money. Bitcoin is another one here too, where Basically, you just bought some Bitcoin or after a while, a percentage because they were worth too much to they, buy just one. They got very expensive. Did very, very expensive, quickly. very quickly. On the back of overconfidence and also the next one, which we'll touch on too. So overconfidence tends to be when people overestimate or exaggerate your ability, your skills, all those kind of things. And a lot of your successes are actually down to luck more so than anything else. Or timing or yeah, timing those fortune. Kind of, yep. So they trade too often and they do the wrong thing. How we can manage that is just put things back into perspective a little bit and say, yes, you've had a winner there. Um, did you actually do your DD or you, your uh, due diligence on that on that fund or on, on that stock? You didn't, so probably luck or probably timing. And then part of this next one here, which is the herd mentality, which my personal opinion is this is arguably the worst risk, which is where humans tend to mimic the actions of larger groups. The common one here is people might know there are forums like Reddit um, out there where um, it's an open forum where people discuss shares, ETFs, whatever it might be. And the clever people out there, they actually start to build up a bit of a following and they can actually falsely build up the the appeal of a certain stock. Yep. So a short seller, which they're the ones that benefit when stocks plummet, they actually want to – It's another, another saying for this is called pump and dumping. So the herd mentality sees the people that are controlling it, they actually pump up a stock price really, really highly – sell when, they th when they've made a huge gain and then start to then infiltrate the market with negative news and then a quick sale comes. But because they've already sold at the top, once the share price starts to really like, fall off the face of a cliff, everyone else who's bought in recently are burned and the people that control this herding mentality or the pump it up have made bulk money. So again, herding was through COVID where most people that we actually ask, why did you actually sell to cash or convert to cash? They just say, because... I know someone that did. Or well, everything I read, that's suggested what... Suggested I should what, do. Yeah, I should do it. So it's the herd mentality where, you know, like the sheep, you're a sheep because you follow everybody else. Yeah, yeah, So exactly. in, in investing, Warren Buffett's saying before, be fearful when others are greedy, and then greedy when they're fearful. That basically contradicts the herding mentality. Yeah. So you shouldn't go against the herd if it's the right thing to do. Yeah, absolutely. And it's funny, isn't it? Like um, even a really good example of that is probably Elon Musk and Twitter, you yep. know, and his own personal fortune in the last couple of weeks that are, uh, well, a couple of months really. But yeah, um, really that influence of media and perception yep. is all that's changed really. And uh, he, he's actually come out and said that he does not think te Tesla's stock is worth anywhere near what it was worth. It's come off a fair bit. Yep. But he even came out and said it's ridiculous. Like This yeah. growth is absolutely ab absurd. Unsustainable. Unsustainable. Yeah. There yeah. is no reason why Tesla stock should be worth what they're worth now. Yep. And he basically called this out. And then yep. because his fans are so adamantly... Um, you know, loyal to him. Well, he's actually seen as a, he's seen as the big innovator. You know, like Steve Jobs or yeah, you know yeah, yeah. Bill Gates. He's seen as the you know the next big. You know, he's not the next big thing. He is the biggest thing at the, going around at the moment. But that is an example of that herd mentality. People just following just for the 
just because it's Elon Musk talking, you know. So it's it's something to be mindful of. Sometimes it can be good, but a lot of a lot of the times it can be bad. And the fourth one here is familiarity, which I think flies under the radar a little bit, and that's that humans actually tend to prefer what's familiar or well known. And a really good example of this is we ask clients all the time. A lot of the time, they actually would prefer to have Australian share exposure because they're familiar with the companies. Yeah, they understand that they see on the news BHP and their or whatever or whoever it is AGL Energy or whoever they shop at Woolies. Yeah, they have Telstra shares, whatever it might be. They go yeah. to JB Hi-Fi. They go to Bunnings, which is all part of a bigger, you know, West Farmers and all of those kind of things. And another common one here is medical professionals. They actually prefer to have investments in CSL or Ramsey Healthcare and those kind of things. Because they understand that industry. 100%. Yeah. Spot on. You've got to be careful that there's no conflict of interest there because sometimes that, c- that can come into play. But And it makes perfect sense. This is more of an emotional reaction. Like You, you feel more comfortable, like it's cosier. It's a bit of a warmer yeah. relationship rather than owning um, a random insurance company that is a 700th stock a stock on the list in in the uk that you've never heard of before yeah you kind of have no familiarity to it whatsoever but again going back to what i said earlier the aussie market only represents two or three percent of the world yeah so if we're too you know aussie too, focused too aussie biased too yeah. aussie focused again it does have its pros and cons but it's just a risk to be mindful of which is where they all tie in together clearly Asset allocation can very much um, mitigate against all four of these risks. Yep. So it's something to be mindful of, but you won't eradicate them altogether. And an example here with um, loss aversion and basically it all coming together is the twentieth in the twentieth the the return sorry of the um, top three hundred companies in Australia from the twentieth of March until today was fifty six percent. So twentieth of March back in last year, twenty twenty two. Twenty twenty. Twenty twenty. So. Start of COVID, sorry. Start, yeah. So at the, the peak of the market yep. drop-off, this is a really extreme scenario, but if yep. someone converted everything to cash at that point in time and left it there, they would have cost themselves 56% of their... Total their investment. Pool. Wow. So half. Yeah. Something to be mindful of as well. So that's if you were a very loss-averse person who followed the herd and then familiarity, they just basically yep. wanted to stay with cash because... Everyone's familiar with cash. Yeah, yeah. Everyone, it doesn't matter who you are, you've, had, you've got a bank account. So yeah. everyone knows cash. Not everyone has owned shares before yeah. or property before. So that's that's a really extreme scenario, but it's it, another thing. It can happen. It did happen. happen. Yeah, this is the thing. It's not like COVID, we made it up. It's just, it has happened over the last three years. And this is some of the financial sort of outcomes. Correct. Yeah. And the reason why we think that behavioral finance or mistakes is so important is that you might remember I said at the start that the total value out of the five. Um, the five steps here equates to 5.2%. Of the 5.2, behaviour finance represents 2.2 of that. Right, so, so getting, that getting nearly, on to close. Nearly half. To half, Nearly yeah. half of it is. And that's purely just don't make the wrong decision yep. at the wrong time. And that's it, all it is. And again, it's like, can you be an expert at this? Because you're already an expert at what you do for a living. You're a plumber or you're a hairdresser. Yep. But can you actually be an expert at this or do you need that expert to come in and help? Which is the financial advice, Exactly. And then we'll touch on the C, which is the cost of cash, which probably won't take too long. So for many people, cash can provide a sense of security and familiarity, which I just discussed. It provides also a level of certainty for planning purposes for, in, for individuals. As an example, investors who require cash flow in retirement can develop strategies to allocate and maintain levels of cash to meet expected spending. A popular strategy is to calculate an, ex- an expected amount um, of money you might need over a given number of years and keep that in cash. So we do this all the time. If a client says, Danny, I want to retire in two years' time and I'd like to spend $50,000 per year, we might say, okay, as a worst case, we'll keep fifty grand in cold hard cash as liquidity just in case markets go up, down, sideways. We don't want to, behavioural finance, sell, sell things at bad times. In panic. Panic mode. So yeah. if there's fifty grand of cash, then that's that's a whole year's worth of pension there. Most most of the time, we will at least probably allow eighteen months, maybe even two years worth of cash, depending on the client's comfort levels, their overall portfolio amount, what they want to spend, and then of course if there are any lump sum costs coming up. So it's common in early retirement years for a client to go, I'm cashing in super. I need a new Land Cruiser and a caravan. I'm going around Australia, and then the year after that, we're going to Europe, and then I'm paying for a wedding kids wedding very common things yep. so they need liquidity there to pay for that so that's something that cash can provide you it's liquidity it's always there you can always nobody's, access it pretty quickly nobody's taking it away from you but there can be a cost to holding too much cash which is what we call a cash drag now 
You might remember back five or ten minutes ago, I was explaining that the long-term returns of that Russell 3000 index for about 30 years was temp- over 10%, nearly 11%. Yep. Whereas this report suggests that the average turn deposit rate, now I know rates have gone up a lot in the last little while. Remember, this is from 2020. The, the average turn deposit rate was closer to 2.83%. Yep. So if you parked all your money in cash over the last 10 years, you're earning 3%. Yep. Versus eight or ten, so yeah, or even almost close to eleven. Yeah, correct. so you're, you're sort of losing eight percent of your yeah potential earnings. So that's a big one for for advisors where we say, look, a client might come in and say, I've sold a property or I've inherited some money, I don't really want to just leave it in cash, but I don't know where else to put it. Yeah, or they might say, I haven't got enough knowledge. Correct, I, I don't know. So yeah, or they might say, I'm pretty comfortable just leaving it in the bank because no one can, can take it away. And something that the Russell report doesn't actually talk about is inflation. So if you leave, call it 100 grand in the bank, in 10 years' time, that 100 grand is buying you a lot less goods and services than it's buying you now. Yep. So the real value of it actually starts to decrease. Absolutely. So inflation, and currently we're in 7 8% inflation figures, your cash actually starts to dwindle and you haven't even touched it yet. So that's... As in what you can buy with that same cash. Yeah. That's a big one. Yep, absolutely. The E is expertise and then the... The percentage value add of expertise over the whole, report, the whole report, they actually put it down to priceless. They couldn't actually quantify that one. And that's because the vary can be so, you know, the spectrum is so broad. So sure. the quantification of the value of financial planning expertise is variable depending on the advisor's practice, service offered. Service offered. So some financial advisors only do risk insurance. They don't do anything else. So clearly they're not going to do things like asset allocation or they might do some tax, but... A lot, of their, a lot of their service offering is quite limited. Um, and then also a client's circumstances. So one client might come in and say, Danny, I only want advice on my 30 grand in the bank. That's all. I don't want you to look at my super. I don't want you to do cash flow, budgeting, anything else. I just want to know how do I invest this 30 grand. Or they might say, I just want aged care advice sort of thing. So, yep. so that's, that falls under that expertise column. Correct. So it's hard to quantify. But what it includes is things like engagement and education. Now, education is a big one, which ties back into behavioural finance. We educate our clients as well as telling them what to do. Remember I said, ask why. Yep. So uh, that why is, so Gavin, we think you should do this. And this is firstly the education piece generally. So you have a conceptual understanding of what we're talking about. But the why is the reasons why we're doing it. Here are the potential risks involved as well. There are always risks. So that's part of the education piece. Sure. And some of the key benefits include Discipline, decision-making and framework, which can assist with managing many of the uh, investor behaviour biases that we discussed in the past topic. It can also increase confidence as a result of ongoing education. Now, you'd be very surprised how many people actually say, not only have you given me peace of mind and less stress, but you've increased my confidence in maybe dabbling myself or just my level of understanding of when the when the finance guy and the news comes on, I know what he's talking about now. Yeah, yeah. I understand what that means. Yeah, Exactly, which yep. gives people just a huge sort of sense of relief that firstly they know a bit more than they probably thought, but then also that um, the advisor is looking after their, their well-being as well. Another one is perspective too. So a lot of the time we get clients to come in and say, oh, I missed out on that property during COVID and I've cost myself this. We might say, yes, I can understand your frustration there, but that's only a two-year period. You're investing for 30 years. The yep. next opportunity will come up. Don't stress too much about yeah, yeah. that sort of stuff. And that, that providing perspective is a very broad brush. That can be, that can be huge. That can be huge. And, and we're, as human beings, Danny, we're all pretty good at focusing on the negative things that happen, aren't we? Like yep. even watching the news, you know, your ears will prick up when there's a big train crash, but, you know, someone says, oh, someone else helped someone down across the road, an old lady across the road, and you don't even batter an eyelid at it. So I think we're almost attuned as human beings to look at the negative thing, so worried about what you lost on that property. Correct investment rather than you know okay what are the opportunities now let's look at the next 28 years of that 30 year period and see what happens exactly and then the the expertise piece um the russell investment actually explains how a normal financial planning process might work so it starts at step one which is discovery or fact finding or the education piece which is getting to know you the client and the client getting to know the advisor to make sure that they gel make sure that the advisor can actually help them with the potential conundrum or problem that they've got solve their equation Um, And the education is really important, which then translates to us um, clarifying those sort of things as well. And then we go away and we create the plan, which is the expertise. So what's our knowledge of 
superannuation law or tax law or our knowledge of the economy at this point in time. And then a lot of the time in Mulcahy Co, because of the multiple divisions, we can consult, you know, Warren Freeman, who's the lender, or we can consult the accountants here for any tax planning or setting up entities. Or if they're a business that needs a marketing plan, we contact our marketing guys or the yeah. legal, legal for a lot of things too. So not only do we have the offering of financial planning expertise, but the financial planners themselves. So I'm educated a lot by yeah, a some lot of more my than, co-workers. And, and also a lot more than your competitors probably, Danny. Massively. So if you're a financial planner sitting in an office by yourself down the street and, yeah, you've got some people you refer to and you have a chat to and have yep. lunch with and a few beers with, but there's nothing like working in the back office here. There's 35 people here in the Geelong office. So yep. everyone working in together, everyone understanding what everyone else does and how that can help your clients. So this is a really good way as to how this the E part of the report actually can connect to the, the overall Mulcahy Co. offering. And then another one is efficiency. So a good one, a good example here is the time poor professional. Someone who works 50, 60 hours a week, super smart. Earns good money. Earns yeah. good cash, all those kind of things, but just don't either want to deal with their money or they don't know how to. So for many clients, the value of the advisor relationship is actually having someone that has the expertise to do something more efic- effectively and efficiently than if you wanted to do it yourself. Yep. Now, you and I have regularly brought up the, the example of when you need your car serviced, you go to a mechanic. Or if you need your plumbing fixed or your toilet fixed, you're probably going to call a plumber. Yep. You could Google it, maybe YouTube and find out, but are you going to do it takes as efficiently time. and effectively? Yeah, it takes time. could take you all day to do something that you could pay someone 50 bucks to do or 100 bucks to do or whatever. Exactly. And then the one that they, they can't quite quantify is the expert knowledge and experience. So some advisors specialise in, in certain areas and some don't, but... It all comes down to you paying for someone's expertise. And another example is, um, I can't recall who the artist is, but there's a, there's a pretty famous story where they were sitting at a cafe and a fan went up and said, can you please just draw me on this very small piece of paper a portrait of themselves or whatever it was? And it took them three or four minutes to do so and it was an amazing piece of work, A+. The artist then asked for a fee to do so and the person said, hang on, it took you five minutes to do that. Yeah, or well, three minutes, yeah, yeah. And then he said, no, it didn't. It took me 25 years to do that. Yeah, exactly. Because of so the skills and experience. You're building up your expertise over a period of time so that you can offer it to someone. It's the classic um, conversation about hourly rates, Danny. You yes. know, like people say, oh, what, you know, we're picking on plumbers, aren't we? But one plumber's mm. 80 bucks an hour, one's 60 bucks an hour. But Why who's to that say that? that the $80 an hour one can't work twice as fast because they're more experienced? So in a lot of ways, you know, you've got to trust your advisor um, that's that education stuff you said at the start, but also put your faith in them that they're going to do the right thing by you because they have got so much knowledge in that area. Exactly. And then to round out the fifth subheading here, it's T is for tax-effective investing, which represents a pretty strong out of 5.2%. Tax-effective investing represents one5 So a common misconception out there is tax is often considered the, the realm of accounting. Now, an advisor can also provide expertise on managing and optimising investment tax for clients. I said before about Australian shares coming with things like franking credits. The concept of of tax investing, for example, isn't just limited to what goes into your tax return. Yes, it's important. Um, But investment tax can also have an impact on the asset value or key portfolio return, even though it may not always be seen. An example for that is when you look at your industry or retail fund, if you go to the investment, investment performance page, a lot of them will have what the accumulation fund returns are and what the pension fund returns are. A lot of the time you might notice that the pension fund returns are actually higher. The reason for that is when you convert your super to pension, the tax rate reduces from 15% to zero. So they might have the same investments, they might own the same shares or the same building, but all the funds that are in the pension side of things don't need to pay tax. So then when they do their revenue-less expenses they don't have the expense of tax, which increases their profits, which increases your returns. So then a common strategy might be for us to actually advise a client to use superannuation to invest. Put money into their firstly, 15% tax is a lot less than any marginal tax rate other than zero. So while you're working, it's important. And then when you've retired, if you've got a million dollar balance and it returns 10%, that's free money. That 100, not free, that $100,000 return is tax free. Yep. Whereas if that's in your personal name and you earn a hundred grand, the tax on that could be twenty five to thirty thousand dollars. Yeah. So, but you could difference. have had your you could have had your money invested in the exact same thing, 
you might have invested it all in, we'll pick the name Commonwealth Bank of Australia and it paid you a hundred grand dividend. One of them you pay the ATO twenty-five to thirty grand, one of them you don't. Yep. Same Commonwealth Bank, same person. It's just how we structure the investment. Absolutely. Works out to one point five percent. And look, our whole pod today, Danny, is talking about a five point two percent increase. You're talking about something that could be 25 to 30% increase. It's so, massive. So this tax component, uh, which is step five of what we're talking about today, is really super important. Exactly. And then this is as well where we can tie quite nicely into the accounting guy. So myself and um, Chris Mulcahy, just last week, we actually worked on a, on a client's file and they're in the peculiar position where they're looking at selling a property which they... So they, investment property? Yep, yep. Or a property. A property. So they're, they're selling a property that they can actually still claim the um, the um, primary place of residence capital gains exemption. So without getting into too much detail, that's a six-year capital gains tax so exemption. It means that they if you meet the basically rules. means they, they, they used to live in the property or they still do, yep. but you've got six years from when you move out to sort of still be able to sell it. And to not sell it tax-free. Not, not, not pay the capital gains tax. Yep. So an example is... Um, they recently had it um, appraised by an, by an agent, as in two weeks ago. And then anyone that's listening, this is early 2023, interest rates have gone up 8 9%, property prices have come down. The price of the appraisal value was a bit less than the client wanted. So now he's going, oh, I might just retain it because the agent has said, we think rates will, will drop by Christmas. And you've got to remember that there's a little thing called the Commonwealth Games in 2026. So we think that the price of property and all those sort of things is going to sort of really, really go gangbusters up until then. But the work that Chris and I did was if you do wait until after August and sell this, the capital gain tax could be a very healthy six-figure number. If you sell it now and potentially get a slightly less value than maybe 12 or 24 months in the future, you're going to guarantee that return now because remember, nobody's guaranteeing capital growth. That's a hope. Yeah, yeah. So you deal with the devil you know, no tax to be paid. Yep. Whereas if you do wait, you've got two options. It either plateaus or you've got three. It, it either plateaus and you're paying capital gains tax. It goes through the roof and your capital gains tax bill goes through the roof commensurately or it drops and you still pay capital gains tax. Absolutely. So then the net figure in this client's pocket will be significantly higher than if he just is a bit tax effective and sells it now versus after August. And the other thing that we're not even taking into account there, Danny, let's say he sells it now and reinvests that in something else. Correct. There's going to be a return on that. And that's the whole well. purpose so. of why we're doing it. We're basically, the client circumstances have changed. As a result, their goals have changed. So now that the purpose of that capital is now better suited for them being used elsewhere. Absolutely. So it's like, well, I need the capital. Like, I need it. It's not a I'd like to. It's pretty much I need it. Um, you got two options. You either get it tax-free or pay a big whack of tax. Yeah. Which one would you do? So tax is, is a really important one. And then, as, I, as I've said, the, the good part about Mulcahy's is um, I had a Zoom meeting with Chris and we nutted it out together to the cent and yep. bang, sent the summary to the client. And it's done. Um, and that's the thing about having everyone in the back office together. You know, that's and it's and it's, we're a bit unique, Danny, in that way. I know there's a lot of other um, uh, firms around that just don't have all these services under the one roof, and it really does make things more efficient. Just ma- makes things happen a lot faster. Exactly. Um, so I, that, yeah. So, so then, to, to summarise, um, this re- the, the the purpose of this report is just meant to quantify the contribution that the technical and emotional guidance of an advisor can have. This is straight from the report, which is things like delivering services and value above and beyond purely investment-only advice because it can potentially offer 5.2% more across appropriate asset allocation, making the right decision at the right time, not having too much money invested in cash, uh, engaging someone with a high level of expertise and knowledge, and then also making the most of the tax system in a fair and legal way, resulting that 5.2%. Value add. And it's it's significant, Danny, because if, if people say to you, oh, okay, um, you know, our cash rate used to be, you know, point point one of a percent, um, you know, if anyone if anybody says to you over a period of time, oh, your investment's gone five point two percent better, that's a massive jump. Like when we talk about five percent off at Meyer, off a pair of shorts, you don't think it's much money, but talking investment terms and gains, yep. it's it's huge. Yeah. Um I know, you know, uh any investment funds that might have been going at sort of, you know, 10 or 11%, as you said earlier, have come back a little bit. But over that period of time, 5.2 is significant. So it's not something to sort of sneeze at. So 
It's, it's an interesting one to deep dive on, Danny. Yeah, there's a lot of detail in there, isn't there? Yeah, so I think we might maybe on the, the show notes on the, the pod, I think we might have a link a link to this just so the clients can have a look. Yep. We do have a summary, a flyer on our, on our website as well, which goes into just a bit of a blurb about them all. Um, which is sort of branded Mulcahy, but we'll we'll, we'll summarize. We'll, we'll have the actual Russell the investment um, reporting all of its detail for those that like the numbers and like yep. the because I, ha- I have not covered everything. You might obviously we're under time constraints, so it will be there as well for listeners yep. of the pod to, to have a bit of a read through as well. And that one page summary Danny's talking about is called the value of financial advice and downloadable from the financial planning page on the Mulcahy.com.au website. So that's great, Danny. Yeah, very in depth. Five, it is good. Five, I'm, five steps. I must admit, when I did see the number, it was probably higher than I thought. And then you do deep dive in and it does make a lot of sense as to yep. where, where... This is what I said at the start. The science behind it makes sense because yep. I initially was sceptical, you know, where they get that figure from. Yeah. Obviously, Rushley Investments, they're a, they're a financially invested investment financial services company. So it's within their best interest for this to look as, as positive as possible, as well as it is for, you know, everyone that works in financial services. But I, I must admit, I do like the science behind it and I do like that they've, you know, mentioned risks... And all of those kind of things, but um, yeah, in a lot of ways, almost everything you've mentioned there, we have mentioned in some other form. We on have previous pods, but it's just interesting to put it all into the one. Um, it ties it of, all together. Yeah, it does, and to say, look, all of these steps, if followed well, with a with a planner that's expert and knows what they're doing, can really you know get you that sort of extra five point two percent or even more, maybe. Yeah. And um, there's been no no more important time to know about investment than now, Danny, isn't there? With this interest rates going up, obviously means people paying more on their mortgage, but also yep. it means that you can potentially get better returns yep. um, on your investments as well with interest rates going up. So there's a slightly positive side to it going up for some other people. So, um, yeah, it's a really opportune time to think about this stuff, I think. And talking about that as well, asset allocation and those kind of things is – you mentioned the InvestSense and they're the team that help us build our portfolio. So um, by engaging us, we've actually been able to, in the, the, the year of 2022, which I know is quite a short sample size, but with unprecedented inflation, unprecedented in- interest rate increases, we've managed to actually outperform over 15 of our competing superannuation funds and their, what they call their My Super or their default portfolios by quite a fair bit. So that that is talking about just the investment return side of things. So if yep. you can think... We've outperformed my CBUS or my Australian Super or my HESTA fund by just an investment return perspective and the advisor can offer me about 5% additional return on top of that. Yeah. So that the whole purpose of this is that is less than our fee, which means that the client is ahead. Absolutely. So it's almost like you're sort of whatever fees you're charging your clients for the expert opinion um, and thoughts and uh, actions is far less than what they're going to sort of gain from the whole process. So. And I think, Gav, you've got something to touch on about a change in the marketing team service offering as we, well. We have, Danny. Yeah, well, let's let's call it win of the week. Thanks, Danny. Yeah, so what we've done in the marketing department to launch 2023 is, uh, as you know, Danny, we've always had website design as one of our sort of key offerings. And any business going around, if you haven't got a website, you know, you don't look like you're a real business from the outside so I suppose a business website is nearly the first thing that people go and look at when they get referred for word of mouth etc so particularly um, when all we seem to do as a human race at the moment is spend every waking hour with a smart device in front of our face absolutely and just an interesting fact about uh, we're up to nearly 80 percent of all internet traffic in Australia right now is on a mobile phone so 80 percent 80 percent almost wow. almost 80 yeah so some figures released just a few months ago so it's crept up over the years, but yeah, 80%, and probably a lot of that is social media. But, um, you know, if you think about yourself, you know, ordering a pizza or whatever, a lot of that's just done on your phone now. Absolutely, so, yeah. Um, yeah, mobile phone, mobile phone uh, active websites are really super important. Um, but now the biggest change we've made, Danny, is that we've always had a professional web service, but we've actually changed it into a subscription model for 2023 and beyond. So we actually found that about sort of 10 or 12 years ago, it came out that the software got so good that clients could update their website themselves. So it was a bit like, oh, yeah, I can, I can jump on at nights. I can update some stuff on my website. But what that meant is that people had to learn another system. They had to sort of become a Swazi web developer in their spare time. A lot of people just didn't do it. So a lot of clients don't do it. Um, the website mm-hmm. sits there as a brochure on the web. It doesn't get touched. Google actually um, punishes you for that uh, in search results. So if nothing changes on your website for months and months and months, you're starting to go down that search um, list 
just how Google works. It rewards up-to-date content, stuff that's getting updated all the time. So um, we've launched a, a subscription model, Danny, which is sort of a benefit to clients in two different ways. One, they don't have to learn a system. They don't have to do the updates. Our team do all the updates. And also there's no large upfront fee. So in the past, a small business website might have costed, you know, between sort of three and $4,000, depending on what you were doing. Um, now we've, we've got that scheduled into a monthly fee so you sort of start paying a monthly fee um it's a, it's at sort of three hundred dollars for year one and then from it goes to 175 a month for years two onwards so for the for the time poor business owner it allows them to spend more time in their business whether it's working on the business or for the business and it's a bit more cash flow positive or cash flow in incentive for them as well Absolutely. Just means they don't have to come up with a big, yeah, big wad of money um, to get their business. It's especially good for startups, Danny. We've yeah. found this subscription model. We've actually had it running in the background there for a little while, but we're launching it properly in 2023. And it's great for those startups where they go, I've, I've got X amount of dollars to start this business. I've got to, you know, buy a van. I've got to buy the tools, whatever I'm going to do. The website, rather than being a big upfront cost, can just be spread over the next 12 months. So and I think too, similar to our ongoing fee or even like a gym membership, which we always use, if clients are paying for something regularly, there's a lot of liter literature and studies out there that actually prove that they, they continue to use a value add rather than pay three grand in one month because in the 10th month, they might be like, I paid for that a while ago. Yeah, yeah. I'm now not going to continue to use it. Whereas if it's a regular thing, they'll go, well, I'm paying for it. It is better cash flow wise, but they actually engage the service offering a lot more, which again becomes a win-win. And absolutely, and it's like anything, Danny, anyone that's in business listening to the podcast today will know that when you get an invoice from somebody, mm. you look at that invoice and go, oh, yeah, that's that 300 I'm paying for the website every month. I better do an update. Let's do an article. So Let's put something else on there. Yeah. And also, you sort of find, Danny, those websites that sit there and don't get updated for a long time, what happens is the business service has actually changed in that time. They haven't changed the website. So the client or the business is getting phone calls or inquiries, oh, you know, can, can I hire you to do this, this, that, and the other? And, and the business says, actually, we don't even do that anymore. Oh, that's on the old website. Yep. Oh, yeah, I haven't updated it. So it can sort of cause you trouble as well without um, the benefit of promoting the products or services that you do currently offer on the website. So, and yeah, the, the idea too, Danny, is that we've got all of our teams sort of just an Australian team. There's five of us in marketing, and those updates come in. They're normally done same day or next day. So, it's not like sort of sending in some updates and hoping they get done in the next two months. Um, so the idea is we've got um, a, a real subscription model and, and people would understand what subscription models are, Danny, from things like their Netflix mm. sub subscription, even their home loan, their car loan. Everything's broken down to this bite-sized piece. So we wanted to do the same thing for businesses to make it a bit more affordable. So, yeah, it's called Websites by the Month. It's on uh, our Mulcahy Marketing website. So um, jump on and have a bit of a look. But, yeah, I just sort of thought that was something that we decided to change in the marketing department here, Danny, for 2023. And, yeah, pretty excited about it because um, the few clients that we signed up already this year are super excited about not having to update their own website and knowing that we're at the other end of the email on the phone. So I think it's a mutually beneficial change. Thanks, Danny. Nice one. Well, thanks for today's podcast, mate. Anytime. It's, it's the uh, number two podcast for 2023. Hope you all enjoyed it. Uh, signing off from Danny and Gav. See ya. Thanks, Danny. You've been listening to the FS360 podcast brought to you by Mulcahy Co. Financial Security 360 is at the centre of what we do at Mulcahy Co. If you'd like to speak to one of our professionals about a range of individual and business needs, give us a call.